Andrew Nash yep. is the deputy director of the Institute of English Studies at the School of Advanced Studies at the University of London in London. And we are in uh, Reading at the Museum of English Rural Life in Reading. We're sitting in the Mark Longman Library, which is basically a, a collection, a comprehensive collection of books about books. Uh, welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. You teach a course that relies on the records of British publishing houses for its uh, foundation. That's right. The course is called Using Publishers' Archives, and it's part of the London Rare Book School, which um, is run by the Institute of English Studies, which I am director of. And each year um, in the summer, we run around 15 or 16 courses on book-related topics intensively in a week. So each course runs for about 20 hours, taught intensively in a week. And the Publishers Archives course is one of those courses. Okay. And who can who can come in and sign up for this? Um, anybody. The entry requirement is we normally expect uh, students to have an undergraduate degree or to have relevant professional experience. What happens if you're just a book lover and a, and a book collector? You don't get in? Uh, yes, you can do. Yeah. The reason why we stipulate an undergraduate degree is because the courses are deliberately pitched at master's level, hmm. um, because you can take the London Rare Book School courses for University of London credit. So you okay. can actually build up credit towards a master's pro, uh, program or a postgraduate certificate in the history of the book that is offered by the University of London. Okay. But frequently we do have um, general enthusiasts, book collectors, um, library and museum professionals who take our courses for professional development and those who are interested in just generally interested in books um, from a historical perspective or perhaps they might have an interest in uh, contemporary in the contemporary rare book trade or the contemporary publishing trade they will often take courses to learn more about the history of publishing or the history of books um, going back to the medieval period, but we, we also run courses that focus on um, the, the, the contemporary publishing scene and on digital book history, um, the digital book of the 21st century. And do all the attendees have grey hair? No, not at all. No. The um, attendees are, are quite varied. We we do draw in um, a number of people um, who are retired um, mm -hmm. and have a, a, a general interest in the history of the book, or they may be book collectors. But we do have quite a lot of um, postgraduate students. Talking about working with or using publishers' archives, maybe you can explain to me exactly this is the course. So what do you do in that course? Well, the course is called Using Publishers' Archives. Perhaps I should have called it working with Publishers Archives. So it's a unique opportunity for students to actually um, look at, research, work with documents that are commonly found in book trade archives. And the University of Reading, where we are today, is acknowledged as the main repository for book trade archives in the UK. And I can talk a little bit about that if it would help. Mm -hmm. Going back to the 1970s, when the university developed a collecting policy in this area. So we, we are uniquely placed to be able to um, expose students or people with an interest in the history of publishing to um, the records that have survived of major publishers, mm -hmm. such as Chatter and Windus, Longmans, Macmillans, Jonathan Cape, Secker and Warburg, George Rankledge, the list the list can, can go on. Just just you saying those names, I just it's so pleasing to hear those those names. Yes, and it, I think it's, it's a characteristic of publishers. They tend to have exotic sounding <laughs> names. Uh, yes, yes. The, uh, the Heinemann, um, portions of the, of the historical Heinemann archive are, are, are also here. Yeah. 
The course doesn't just use the um, archives here at Reading. We're yeah. also able to introduce students to some of the collections held in the British Library mm -hmm. in London, um, where in particular the um, archives of Richard Bentley and Son in the, from the 19th century and the Macmillan archive, which is a, um, a very important archive in terms of the history of publishers' archives in Britain. Right. The moment when the British Library acquired the Macmillan archive. The British one, not the American one. No, the British one yeah. only. It's seen as a foundational moment in the organisation of publishers' archives in Britain. What does that mean? Well, Perhaps the best way to answer that question is to tell you a little bit about the history. In the 1960s, um, Macmillan, the company, the publishing company Macmillan um, Britain, um, UK, decided that they wanted to get rid of their archive. Publishers are not archivists. This is an important thing to bear in mind. Mm -hmm. Publishers will keep records for the necessary day-to-day -day running of their business. Well, and for income tax purposes or whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And obviously the, the life cycle of a book because of copyright will extend over several decades. So keeping yeah. records is very important. But there will be large parts of a business's um, archive that it's not necessary for them to keep. It yeah. costs a lot to warehouse. Like so what? Large parts of historical correspondence with printers or with um, booksellers, financial records that are no longer relevant to the day-to-day -day running of a business. So publishers will, will, always, uh, will always have and have always had what you might call a, a sort of inconsistent attitude towards preserving their records. From a researcher's perspective, we like to think that every aspect of a publisher's business is important because mm. it helps us understand more about the history of publishing. Right. But a business is going to think differently. Mm -hmm. So in the 1960s, when Macmillan decided they wanted to um, depose, uh, dispose of um, portions of their historical archive, the original plan was to sell the archive. To some book dealer or some collector. Indeed, yes. Right. Um, and at the time, and this has become even more likely, the chances are that it would um, find its way over the, the Atlantic yeah, and be yeah. picked up by <laughs> um, a, yeah. a US institution. Yeah. And to cut a long story sh uh, short, what actually happened was that the, um, the archive was sorted by Simon Noel Smith into material that would be kept and deposited in the British Museum Library as it then was, mm -hmm. material that would be sold on the open market and material that would be um, got rid of what, what was known as the residue. And what actually happened was that the what was deemed to be the most important material ended up at the British Museum Library. What did he deem most important? It tended to be the uh, correspondence with major authors uh, um, in yeah. the Macmillan archive. Yeah. And the Macmillan archive obviously has extensive correspondence with major literary authors such as W.B. Yeats, uh, Thomas Hardy and many others um, and a lot of important non-fictional authors of the 19th century. The, what was known as the, the um, residual parts of the archive actually ended up here at the University of Reading. The way in which the Macmillan archive was saved for the nation, that was actually the phrase that yeah. was used, was yeah. seen as an important moment retrospectively in the recognition that publishers' archives were important national cultural heritage and not just business. Just like any other business, it's yeah. specifically important for cultural growth and development and is that it? That's right, yes. I think the key word is, is heritage. That if, right. if you have um, embedded in publishers' archives extensive records of the publishing history of major literary authors, yeah. um, then that is part of the heritage of the country. But so much of your heritage has gone over the pond. Yeah. Really, I mean, yeah. tons of it. Yeah. I it, mean, the Ted Hughes is in Atlanta. And I think Philip Larkin wrote about this. Yes, he did. Yes. Yeah. At the time of the acquisition of the Macmillan Archive. Yes, it was. Um, that's right. Um, and you're always going to get that collision between cultural imperatives um, and commercial imperatives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
and different publishers will have different attitudes um, towards this. The most famous recent example is the acquisition of the John Murray archive by the National Library of Scotland. What happened with the, with the um, John Murray archive was mm. that it was valued by um, Quaritch. I think it was forty-five million pounds or something, but that. The, but this was, was Murray is still active, and they went to Quaritch and they said, "Can you look at this?" Yes. Yeah. And 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 valued the yeah. archive. Okay. But Murray had a um, a very benevolent attitude towards heritage, and yeah. they wanted the um, the National Library of Scotland to acquire the archive, and eventually, through a series of money raising activities mm. and also a grant from I think I believe it was from the Heritage Lottery Fund at the time the archive was acquired by the National Library of Scotland for um, considerably less than that that valuation required. Oh, this was done as a, as a service to the country? As a, yes absolutely mm. and it wasn't the case that the money went and lined the pockets of the mm. Murray family mm. because mm. it was actually fed back into a series of educational initiatives mm. Mm -hmm. around the archive so that the archive was made accessible to the public right, right. and educational activities were built around it using the money that had been raised, raised to purchase it. So um, that story, which has been written about very, um, very extensively by uh, David McClay, who was the, the, the first curator of, of that collection mm -hmm. is a really good example of the um, the attitude, the recognition, I suppose, that publishers' archives contain very, very um, valuable heritage materials. Mm -hmm. So what, why is it so valuable then? Drill down on that for me. Well, I, I suppose it, you might say that publishers' archives have more than one kind of value. They have a commercial value. Uh, because they, they they might contain considerable amounts of papers relating to major literary figures in the case right. of the John Murray archive, Byron, Jane Austen, many others, Darwin. But there's also that, that sense of cultural value. Uh, Jane Austen is on the ten pound note. Um, so there is a, a you know an indicator of the way in which an author is perceived as part of national cultural heritage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So a business archive, a book trade archive, can contain these elements of cultural heritage and you're always going to get that kind of um, collision between um, the cultural and the commercial, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. business and heritage. Right, okay. So tell me what you do with the material that's here then. Like what do you, you bring your students in and like what do they actually look at and what do you tell them? Okay, well the course is, is designed to do several things. It mm. introduces students to the varied nature of publishers' archives. Because publishers' archives, um, because they are business archives, and indeed book trade archives generally, mm. um, are not collected. They, they don't take the form of other kinds of archives, such as the, the, the archive of an, of an author, which might generally contain almost exclusively mm -hmm correspondence um, of that author or yeah. perhaps manuscripts of that author. So on the one hand, the, the course is designed to raise awareness of the unusual nature of publishers' archives. So um, I'm particularly keen to um, introduce students to the different kinds of material hmm. that you might find in a publisher's archives. Why that material has survived and why other material might have been lost what do you find in the publisher of our publisher's archives then? like what what do you find typically you will find correspondence between a publisher and its authors mm -hmm. correspondence between a publisher and other agents in the book trade so correspondence with printers correspondence with booksellers correspondence with publishers representatives or yeah. travelers the archive here, the George Routledge archive here, has got some uh, wonderful files from the 1930s of correspondence between the sales manager at George Routledge mm. and the um, the publisher's travellers. 
Um, they had one traveller for the north of England and Scotland. They had one traveller for the south of England. They had one traveller for London. And you can you can get um, a very interesting insight into the way that books were distributed, the relationship between the bookseller and the publisher through this travelling salesman mm-hmm. who introduced, who would take inspection copies, dust yeah. wrappers, and try and get advanced dummies. Orders. Dummies. So. The, the correspondence can take can, can can be really very varied. Now, a lot of um, people who use publishers' archives are interested in the publishing history of individual authors, so they tend to yeah. dive in mm-hmm. and look at look for letters from Thomas Hardy to Macmillan or whatever it might be. That's the kind of point of entry. That tends yeah. to be. Yeah. What, what I'm trying to do on, on my course is to show that that um, if you want to understand the history of publishing, mm. you've got to look at the larger picture. Mm-hmm. So that just diving in to look at um, the the author-publisher relationship in the Routledge archive yeah. is only going to tell you so much. Mm-hmm. If you were to look at the correspondence between the sales manager and the publisher's traveller, you get a sense of what booksellers were thinking about this book that was about to be published by Mm. this famous author Mm -hmm. um, or whatever it might be and how that that book actually made its journey. And why is that important? I believe it's important because it helps us to draw up the, the links in the chain in which books are disseminated. I can give you an example, um, a very famous book that Routledge published in the 1930s, um, To Beg I Am Ashamed, which was published under the name Sheila Cousins. And it was, or purported to be, um, the memoirs of a prostitute. And there's always been a, a considerable debate about the authorship of this book. What's interesting in the files... A pseudonym, isn't it? Or I guess, yeah, 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 it's a pseudonym. Um, what's interesting about the files with the publisher's travellers is that we get an insight into the moment when the uh, booksellers decided that they were they, they would not stock this book for moral reasons. So they were the gatekeepers. They were the gatekeepers, mm-hmm. yeah. So um, it gives you a sense of how powerful they are in yeah. terms of what people are thinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Isn't that interesting? But mm. it's important to say that... that Correspondence is only a small part or one part mm-hmm. of a publisher's archive. And in some instances, it might be actually um, a missing part. The Longman archive, um, which is here, uh, which dates back to the 18th century, to the inception of the firm, but mm. has huge gaps caused by periods of, of um, the, the firm's history where their records were lost. Lost or destroyed, lost or destroyed, destroyed. Um, in in their particular instance, through fire, through enemy action in the Second World War, when Paternoster Row, as you know, don't know, was flattened yeah, one yeah. one night, and and considerable amount of the the records of publishers were destroyed. And books themselves and, and books yeah. themselves, yeah. the stock, yeah. yes, yeah. particularly with Simpkin Marshall, the, the the leading wholesaler. So the Longman archive actually its richness lies not in its correspondence, at least certainly for the um the eighteenth and nineteenth century part of it. Mm. The post war part is very rich in in correspondence. But in the, the, the older part, the richness lies in its financial records. And the financial records is um, are an, an, an another part of publishers' archives that I concentrate on in this uh, course, and that can be can be a very unfamiliar part of publishing for students, and it can involve exposure to um, documentary material that is. Quite intimidating, quite unusual. Yeah, especially for book bookish types. For bookish yeah. types, because they're yeah. not necessarily used to dealing with, the with they, they Indeed, <laughs> yes, yeah. Nineteenth-century record keeping, in particular, um, was very eccentric, not mm. at all uniform. I mean, it did follow certain patterns that are discernible. Double-entry bookkeeping is 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 that sort of visible there. But it's the nature of um, the history of publishing that the contractual arrangements between authors and publishers would vary from book to book. And so different arrangements would require different kinds of bookkeeping because publishers 
needed to re to re record some kind of information for one mm -hmm. book, mm -hmm. and they didn't need to record the same for information another. for another book. If like if they paid in advance, for example. Yes. If an author was being remunerated on a half-profit system, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. publisher needed to record all of the costs of production and all the sales in order to be able to determine what portion of profit would be paid over to the author. But if they the, had... Sorry, the author would want to have a look at that too, obviously, for theoretically, for proof of the, right, know, what, for, what, they, what they should be paid. Yeah. Even, if, even though it's the publisher that's doing the recording. Yeah, yeah. And in the 19th century, I mean, you, you're, you're touching on a very interesting aspect of the history of publishing and the history of authorship there, mm. because in the 19th century in, in Britain, publishers didn't routinely share that information with authors. And one of the main driving forces behind the formation of the Incorporated Society of Authors in mm. the 1880s mm. was a, 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 I wouldn't call it a belief, but a suspicion yeah, that some they were getting publishers ripped off, yes. were, that they were getting ripped yes. off, that the publishers yes. were inflating production costs and without being able to vet um, these, these books, mm. um, authors had no way of knowing for certain that they weren't being, if not diddled, then at least, um, you know, sort of being done out of perhaps their, their total, total rewards. So wouldn't they, they'd want to see an audited version They'd want to see some sort of neutral you know, review of this, if there is such a thing, to prove that uh, that either they were getting shafted or they weren't, right? Yes. yes. So how could they do that? Well, they lobbied. They pushed very hard for this. Um, yeah, but but how, even if you're looking at the publisher's books, how do you know that they aren't bullshit? Yeah. Well, how do you know? Well, you don't know. You don't know. So you just have to trust. And you have to trust. And um, trust and mistrust is part of the history of publishing. Is Barabbas a, pub a publisher? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating, isn't it? So it really shows you how important it is for an author to find someone that they can actually trust and think is honest. Yes. And that's, that's part of the history of publishing, isn't it? Some mm -hmm. authors had very close relations with their publishers, yeah. looked upon their publishers as um, sort of um, part of the, of the, of the, the um, production process, partners, if you like, in, yeah. the, in the cultural process yeah. of creating their work. Yeah. Other publishers looked upon, sorry, other authors looked upon publishers as intermediaries between their work and the public that consume their work. But sorry, just the rise of the literary agent is also involved here because because often the author doesn't want to get into this yucky conversation about money. They'll just leave that to their agent. Indeed, and in in, in Britain, the literary agent um, arrives in the eighteen eighties, mm. late eighteen seventies, early eighteen eighties, at around about the same time right. as the that what the yes A P Watt is yeah. the, first, the, the big one acknowledged as the first professional. He comes into business, or he, he starts his business just just before the Incorporated Society of Authors comes into being. So, in the eighteen eighties, you have this this these these various moments, um, which is seen very much as part of the increasing professionalization of authorship. Yeah, and the literary agent um, emerges in part because literary property has become so um, varied. Um, and so diverse. The different rights that could be associated with a literary work, serial rights, volume rights, overseas rights, colonial rights, and mm. translation rights. And then what, starting in the 20s, movie rights? Yes, that's right, yes, yeah. And all of this you can track, of course, in publishers' archives. The, the growth of all these other sort of subsidiaries. That's right. And one of the things that, that, that can emerge from publishers' archives is that a lot, of, a lot of sort of misunderstandings about the history of publishing can be, um, can be corrected. Um, a publisher like Chatter and Windus, for example, responded very positively to the emergence of the literary agent. Some publishers, such as William Heinemann, looked upon the agent as a parasite. Right. coming between yeah. the author and the publisher, disrupting uh, that relationship. But the, And the importance of that relationship too, wasn't it? Like part of the reason that these publishers got into business in the first place was, hey, I get to hang out with some of the 
coolest people on, <laughs> in the you know in the country, and I become friends with them. Yes, it's always been a very clubbable um, profession. <laughs> right. um, yeah, it's a very very, yeah. and indeed, dating back into the into the nineteenth century, when a lot of business was done at trade dinners, mm -hmm. um, publishers like like Longmans and John Murray would hold trade dinners where um, discounted sales of books would would take place and authors and publishers and booksellers would all congregate and have a, a, a lavish meal and it was it was very clubbable and very gentlemanly and of course very very male in its culture the 19th century um, to come back to the the financial records, the different kinds of um, financial records that students on the course are introduced to. Mm. When we get into the 20th century and the bookkeeping becomes more transparent, students can actually um, work out from the book uh, bookkeeping how much an author was paid, how much they, yeah. they received. When the royalty system becomes the standard method of remunerating authors mm. um, in Britain, which is much later than it is in the US, for example. Why is that? A very good question. I think that that would be a, an excellent question to put um, on, an, on a, um, an examination paper or, or to set as an essay. Um, it's, it's got a lot to do with the, the habit of, author, of, of publishers in the 19th century. A considerable number of publishers like to purchase Outright. Uh, books outright yeah and then as the the number of, of rights that could be associated with literary work grew in the 19th century mm, yeah. authors were more keen and they were encouraged by the society of authors not to sell books outright because they would actually these subsidiary rights would be protected when the royalty system comes in and by the 20th century it's standard the standard way of recording um, the cost of production and the payments made to author was through um, double entry bookkeeping profit and, and loss mm -hmm. and students on the course um, i present them with um, examples of, of beetle edges where they can actually um, look at and work out the um, cost of production of the first edition of a, of a, of a book mm. um, the royalty that was paid to the author be helpful sorry to... do you see the bills like you see the bills from the printer and the the binder and whatever color work that they might have to do or all these other different things you 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 see all they, that right? they tend not to survive right. and the actual bills themselves no, it's um, just a kind of a ledger it's a ledger which records right. the costs okay um but that does allow students to see at a glance the relative costs of the different components of producing a book, yeah, paper, yeah. machining costs, binding, advertising, which is another, obviously, another whole category. Could uh, you you could also see uh, one publishing house maybe pays a certain amount, but they use it, this one printer or paper supplier. Another one uses different companies, different suppliers. And you could see, well, oh, who's who's the most expensive in that category? Yes, you can do, um, and. Uh, th there's a very good example of that again a, a collection here um, mm. the um, Allen and Unwin collection which goes back actually to firms out, out of which Allen and Unwin emerged mm. Swan Sonnenschein and mm. George Allen and co mm -hmm. so the the archive here is really extensive it goes back to the early 19th uh, to, to, to the late 19th century but the Allen and Unwin archive um, and Stanley Unwin obviously a, a major figure oh, in yeah. 20th century wrote the, book. Publishing. wrote the book yeah wrote, wrote, the, wrote the book <laughs> the, the, the truth about publishing yes, yes. Um, but it's an interesting example because for most of his books Stanley Unwin used as the printer Unwin Brothers mm. so the family of printing yeah. firm mm -hmm. and it's evident from the um, from the archive that the cost of printing um, for Unwin was much lower um, than it would be if he had used an, a different firm than than his family firm the Unwin, Unwin brothers but he would have showed to the author he wouldn't have showed that would the author have benefited from that a relationship or not I think by the time we get to the 19th 20s and 30s when um, Unwin is in business 
Um, I think the dealing was much, much more transparent um, and authors would have had access to that information and mm -hmm. the trust would have been there. Yeah. So the um, reduced production costs that Unwin incurred through being able to use Unwin Brothers as his printer um, would have resulted in greater benefits for the author because right. reduced production costs therefore meant a, a, a greater yeah. profit. profit. As a collector, I would like, you know, what would be interesting for me is to see which books had the best quality paper supplier, for example. Like, it seems to me that you would be able to find things out about the quality of that book production, and that might be of interest to a collector. I think it, it would to do that. It would yeah. be quite a... Would it give the names of the suppliers? Um, in, in Yes, in some instances, you would probably have to cross-reference that to other parts of the archive mm -hmm. so that within the outgoing correspondence would be um, letters to suppliers or you would have to cross-reference to um, the printers so that you, yeah. you know. But commonly it would, certainly in the, in, in the 19th century, um, the ledgers that, that I've seen and that I've worked with, mm. you, you, you are able to trace the paper supplier. Right. But that, it, that would be quite a, a large undertaking if you wanted to trace the different, um, different, kind, different quality of, of book and, and work out the, the, the paper cost, the cost of the paper for different kinds of, of quality paper, yeah. Yeah. you would have to do quite a, an extensive piece of research. But, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. that is, is certainly what an archive, publisher's archives, can allow you to do. Yeah. Okay, so uh, the way that you do it, you told me basically what you do. The way that you do it is you, you go out to these different facilities, one here in Reading and um, British Museum or British Library. Mm -hmm. And so they have a look at the stuff. Then what do you do? I like to leave the students, to give the students p periods of time where they are just looking at material. Handling it. And handling it, mm -hmm. working their way through it. Obviously, I've chosen the material carefully in the hope that it will elicit certain kinds of information. Mm -hmm. But students always surprise you by okay. picking out things that you hadn't noticed mm -hmm. or drawing conclusions that you hadn't expected. Uh, to take one example, the Chatham and Windus archive has a, a, an excellent collection, uh, a record of their advertising. They have a, a, a series, an uninterrupted series from um, around about 1917, I think, mm of all of the adverts that they placed in newspapers, in magazines. They actually um, have pages, what are they called? Anyway, there's a name for that. When you get the ad back, just to prove that you did the, you, you your ad appeared in the- I think the, that's probably what it is. That, that's yeah. what they've got. Yes, they've done. And they're pasted into yeah. oh, okay. um, a, a, a letter book Lovely. or a ledger book so that you can yeah. actually work your way through and trace. Yeah. You can see the ads yeah. and you can also see the cost of the ad, and that's one of the most fascinating things. So yeah. each each advertisement above it has mm. got, usually in red inks, wonderful, um, a recorded cost of placing that advertisement. What I do is I, I, I usually make the students work in pairs. I mm. give them a, a book and I, and, and I say, right, I want you to, to trace all of the adverts of this particular book over a, 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 a one-year period or whatever it might be, yeah. Yeah. Um, and just draw out anything that that you find interesting and mm -hmm. they tend to focus on the presentation though the use of quotes from reviews the uh, style famously in the 1930s victor gollanch has um, used a very aggressive form of advertising mm -hmm. with do you use color like purple and yellow or tended to be black and black and white oh, okay yeah. but mm -hmm. gollanch was a um you know an innovator in terms of type design and 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 that that, that way of arresting the eye chatham and windows was much more sober tended to rely more on words rather than visual display mm -hmm. But it's still very interesting to for students to see um, when a, a work is evidently become a success, then yeah. there's a lot more adverts. You mean, sorry, there is proof that the more you advertise, the more you sell. Is that what you're saying? No, I think it, the proof is the other way around. The more you sell, 
the more you advertise. So you've 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 got a hit. You realize you've got a hit. So you push it. You push it. Yes. Right. And that is actually what uh, Stanley Unwin Talk says in the truth yeah. truth about mm -hmm. publishing. It's mm -hmm. what um, other publishers of the twenties yeah. and thirties say yeah. is the nature of advertising, and it's borne out by these advertisements. So a work like Aldous Huxley's Brave New World, for example, which is mm -hmm. one of the examples that I give the students to look yeah. at, sparse advertisements and then all of a sudden advertisements on their own so that initially his his uh, brave new world might appear as part of a group of newly published titles 1932 uh, yeah and, and and then all of a sudden is being advertised on its own sometimes without hmm. anything more than nothing more than just the title well they should use the cover because it's brilliant yeah, it's a wonderful cover brilliant yes. um so to, to go back to what would actually happen in the classroom students mm. would have um half an hour or so looking at these advertisements and drawing out any anything that, that takes their interest they are struck when i um, if they don't immediately look at the cost of these advertisements and I direct them to, mm. to look at them, they are struck by the amount of money that was expended on advertising by publishers. And that has always been the case. Like what, 10% of the, the production much, value? Yes. Or? I mean, you're putting me on the spot to come up with something there. Mm, yeah. I would say at least that. It's funny, though. You hear publishers talking about the fact that advertising is a waste of money. You hear that yeah. often. Yeah. But it's not. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think it goes back to to what we said that that um, the more a book sells, the more you advertise it because you're right. you're pushing your surefire winner. You've already got like a bit of a buzz. You got word of mouth, and you're as, you, as we've said, you're sort of you're sort of helping that word of mouth along. Is that it? Yes, that that's right. And and in fact, to, to give you an example from a much later period, that's not from um, the archival records. Mm. There was a. Um, a very effective and, and famous ad advertisement, television advertisement of Geoffrey Archer. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which, which of his best-selling novels it was. And it featured a, a goldfish swimming around a, a bowl, repeating on loop, do you know this book has sold a million copies? Oh, yeah. Do you know this book has sold a million copies? Mm -hmm. So playing into our, our understanding of goldfish having no memory or you know, no sort of brain. there's no brain or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you know, that will make you want to buy the book because if a million copies have been sold, you could be the million and first sort of thing. Um, you could be with every, you know, with a crowd of people who are in the know or, you know, it seems to me that that's what the message is, is that, well, if, if, other, if they sold a million, it must be good. Absolutely. Yeah, it is that. That's or, why they're going to sell their next million. Whereas was he the, in prison at that time? <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, whereas the book that sold 150 is not worth pushing. Right. Yeah, that's it. You can't push a, a dud. So what? It has to have a certain amount of legs just on its own before you've done any promotion. And then you, you kind of look through your your sales and you say, okay, this one's getting a bit better. Let's add. That's where we advertise. Yes, that's that's certainly what the evidence um, suggests from and it from these archives, and it mm. worked certainly yeah. In, in yeah. That's another example of a, an, another um, type of documentary material that you you will find in mm -hmm. publishers' archives. Right. The Chatter and Windus advertisements books just happen to be a really useful source for exploring the way publishers advertise books because they're all in one place because you've got these, this record of the advertisements pasted into books. Right. In other archives, a publisher might not have kept a record in yeah. this way, or if yeah. they did, they might not have codified it in this way. So it becomes more difficult to teach, more difficult to draw out. And all the time, what I'm encouraging my students to do is to reflect on that, to reflect on the internal organization of an archive. Okay, so reflect on the fact that the publisher has decided to keep these records and not those records and why? To, yes, um, but also to organize the, the records in that way. And to give you another example, we spend uh, the final two sessions on the mm -hmm. course mm -hmm. looking at the archive of Gerald Duckworth, a publisher set up, as you know, in the late 19th century, running through various sort of different forms really in, in the 20th century. And that archive is housed in Senate House Library, which is the library of the University of London. 
Um, but more so even the longman, it was the victim of fires and enemy action and only um, portions of the archive remain and it really exists in two parts, two tranches, one from the 20s and 30s and one from the 70s, 80s and 90s. So in the, 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 the portion of the archive from the 1920s and 1930s is organised in a completely different way from the portion that's preserved um, in, from the 1970s, 80s and 90s. So the earlier part of the archive is organised into files chronologically and alphabetically by the recipient of the letter. Right. So you would have, say, for 1931A, um, January to March. So all of the, um, the correspondence beginning with A in one file from January to March, 1931. A to Z. Yeah. Now that can be maddening if you are trying to trace the publishing history of an individual title, because the letter to the author, Arnold, let's say, would be in the A file. But the letter to the printer pertaining to the publication yeah. of that book might be in the C archive for close. Presenting students with that kind of material is a, an introduction to the difficulty of working with this material. How well, do sorry, you... Sorry, you, you want it to be uh, recorded by book. Well, that's that, what you want. That's, what, that's generally what a researcher would want if they are researching... Um, the publishing history of an individual author mm. or an individual title. And that is how the, the, the latter part of the archive is organised from the 70s, 80s and 90s. It is organised by author. So, for example, one of Duckworth's um, major authors from the, from the 70s and 80s, Beryl Bainbridge, you have files relating to the publishing of her individual titles. But you also have files relating to the translation rights of her individual titles. And the, the in the final session, I hand out all of the, the, the different files by different translation, the French translations, the German translation, what was then labeled the Czechoslovak translation. <laughs> With all their lovely different dust jackets or? No, it's, no. it's a record of the negotiation. Just, oh, okay. Uh -huh. With translators. How much we got for With a... the publishers. Often it's a record of, failed, um, you know, a negotiation right. um, with a translator who wants to produce a translation of a novel, mm -hmm. but then also a negotiation with potential publishers of that translation. So you have two phases of negotiation right. and quite often it wouldn't lead to um, a published book. Because Wouldn't the publishing house be responsible for getting their own uh, translation and they just pay the directly for it and then turn it over to their translator? That would vary from, from book hmm. to book. With an author like Bainbridge, they would actively seek translator because they, they there was every chance that her works would sell in translated form. For less high profile authors, then it would not be uncommon for publishers to receive approaches from potential translators interested in Translators work. or publishing houses? Both. So translators might come and say, Directly. I have interested. Doing this myself and, and then this. I will sell my translation to whomever uh, in Russia or that, that That might happen, yes. They might have already um, made an arrangement or there would be um, a, a, an arrangement between the two publishers. That, that, I see. that could vary. So these files can open up those sorts of questions, precisely the questions that you're, you're asking right. about how did a publisher handle the translation right. of right. the works that they published. And the but why is this of interest? For me, it's of an interest because it, it shows students the internationalism of publishing in the period, um, and that could apply to, to any period. It's also, I think, quite, as I say, it's quite interesting to show students records of failed attempts to get publishing projects yeah. off the ground. Just looking at the relative size of the files, as you might imagine, translation into French and German, great big fat files, translation into Slavic languages generally quite slim files, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's profit motive too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. But it, it, it does help students understand um, the nature of a publishing business in whatever period you're looking at to be able to look beyond 
the author publisher correspondence. Yeah. Look at other yeah. aspects of the the circulation and distribution of books and generation of revenue. Absolutely. Okay, why does this matter generally? <laughs> what you're doing, like it's, you know, like understanding what you know publishers' uh, archives uh, mean to us. Um, well, I think that that it will mean it'll matter generally, or means mean things to, to different people. My mm. my own background mm. is in English literature, the study of English literature, and I became very interested in understanding how books came to be in the form in which they appeared in my hand when I was reading them. So um, looking at the material conditions of composition, production and reception, for me, enriched my knowledge and understanding of a book yeah. as it appeared, sort of knowing how that book came in, into, into being. Certainly as a, um, a teacher um, of English literature in, in universities, it always struck me that there was a tendency for students to be completely oblivious about mm, the mm. way in which um, their copy of Oliver Twist, for example, in whatever edition they were using, ignorant or innocent about how it came to be in the form in which it, it appeared to them in the, the copy that they were using. And that's what led me to take an interest in publishing history. But other people perhaps with an interest in um, economic history or mm -hmm. business history, are interested in publishers and publishers' records um, as part of understanding the changing nature of business um, and economics in whatever historical period they're looking at. Still doesn't tell me why it's important. Why should anyone study this? Well, you're... But, what you're effectively asking is why is the study of history important? Why is the study of the humanities <laughs> important? Carriers of information, carriers of culture, they are um, an experience that most people can relate to. Before um, we arrived in these, this building um, today, you told me that you had looked at an exhibition of Ladybird books yeah. that is mm -hmm. on display here at the Museum of English Rural Life. And we both we both commented that we were brought up on Ladybird books. Mm -hmm. Element that's a personal um, element, a personal engagement. Um, if I if I think of an aspect of my childhood, it involves an engagement with books, mm -hmm. and it involves mm -hmm. an engagement with a particular publishing uh, phenomenon. And an appearance. And an appearance, uh, yeah. a visual, a tactile yeah. relationship yeah. with books, yeah. a visual yeah. um, uh, response to books. And surely the study of, of books, therefore, is the study of, of culture. It's the study of social history. Studying books and studying publishing, you have to draw on so many different kinds of history. You have to draw on social history, mm. cultural history, mm -hmm. economic history. History of the imagination. History. Yeah, right. history of the imagination, literary history, or the history mm -hmm. of aesthetics. You have to um, be skilled in understanding economics, mm -hmm. history, literature, language. It's very easy to think that the history of the book is everything. I think the study of the book and the study of publishing is a way of studying history. Darnton's early work, uh, it's just fascinating how he traces... Uh, the smuggling of books in yes. from outside of France. And yes. yes, and and of course there have been various um, rewritings of Danton's communications well, circuit. Uh, yes, uh, various people uh, have applied it because Danton was very upfront about the fact that he was a, a, a historian of the Enlightenment. His diagram pertained particularly to the Enlightenment. There's a very um, a very interesting essay by uh, Claire Squires and Padmini Ray Murray on redesigning the communication circuit for um, the digital book and for 21st century publishing. And they, they do some very imaginative things about the different relations between authors and publishers, publishers and booksellers, authors mm -hmm. and readers, and yeah. how it's changed. Publishers' archives, I think, can help open up Danton's communications circuit and in a very interesting way because you can take a, a discrete admittedly vast and inchoate collection of material mm. and you can see the links between authors and publishers agents and publishers publishers and 
booksellers the relationship the, the, yes. the relationships yeah. at, at any yeah. one period yeah. of time it's interesting because that's exactly what I, early on i kind of in doing this podcast and i've been doing it for more than 10 years it's darnton's communication circuit and i wanted to identify as many different people along that circuit who i could talk to who are best practitioners so i could get a good overview of that very not that circuit but you know the circuit that's that's that we're living through that we're, we're living working through. with yes yeah mm. i think it's also okay certainly in my experience that whenever you teach the history of the book you almost always end up talking about the contemporary you end up talking about students uh, engagement with books because as often as not you're teaching the history of, of the book the history of publishing the history mm -hmm. of reading to people who are avid readers so they understand their own uh, relationship with um, the different players they understand their own relationship with booksellers I, I always ask my students for example how do you go about acquiring your books particularly relevant question in these days of Amazon and mm -hmm. internet book selling. Mm -hmm. But a surprisingly large number will say, I absolutely am committed to bookshops. I love going yeah. into bookshops. Yeah. You know, that, that then allows you to provide a, an interesting contemporary context for understanding the history of bookshops. Without wanting to go off topic, this year at the London Rare Book School, for the first time, we ran a course on the history of bookshops and book selling, um, specifically that that environment the space book selling and the way it's changed through history cultural oases is yeah. what they are in different communities yeah. yeah and understanding the historical um dimension of that can can really illuminate the contemporary and help history. the contemporary to survive yes yes indeed so um to come back to Danton's communication circuit, one mm -hmm. um, body of material we haven't spoken about yet that I'm always interested in introducing students to mm -hmm. are, um, well, there's, there's, there's two kinds of material and I group them together in a session called the receipt of manuscripts. And we look at examples from the Alan Nunwin archive of readers' reports. And we also mm -hmm. look at um, ex an example of body of material from the Chatter and Windus archive of their manuscript entry books. So in the 19th century and for much of the 20th century, whenever um, a manuscript was received by Chateau, they kept a record of it. Uh, the data decision was made on it, the communication with the author, and quite often a one-line summary of why the book was rejected or yeah. why the book was yeah. accepted. It's a risk assessment, which is so interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a commercial decision connecting the commercial with the artistic. It's saying, are we going to make money off this work right. of art? Yes, yeah. Uh, but it, it also gives an insight into the sheer scale of the business because these manuscript entry books, and again, I encourage the students to spend 20 minutes or so just leafing mm. through them. Every book that was accepted is underlined in red. And you would be amazed, it's about 5% of the manuscripts that they received. Is that a lot or a little? I think that's, on the face of it, quite a little, really. Um, I don't or, know about that. Um, Even the number of manuscripts they receive. Well, that be that as it may, what it does indicate surely is is the sheer amount of business, um, reading of manuscripts or consideration of manuscript that went on that yeah. was required in, yeah. in, in that period. The reader's reports that we look at, that I select the Alan Unwin archive, mainly because they used a lot of outside readers. Some publishers would employ readers or, or would actually have a re have a member of the firm as their their designated yeah. reader others would use outside readers and because alan Unwin published a lot of non-fiction books technical books books on politics economics and so on they frequently used experts um, often experts associated with universities and just seeing the, the different style of these um, reports and addressing what you said earlier about the, the, the risk assessment, the, the competing demands. That's the most important criteria for a reader. You want them to pick the right one that's going to make you money. I mean, sure, you want an important book to, to put your name on. Yeah. But are we going to make money at this yeah. or not? So it, often it doesn't, it wouldn't matter if they're an expert in a certain field. 
you want someone who's got a feel for if this is going to make money or sell. not. Yes, for yeah. what will sell. But it is both of those things, though. It is um, an, a putting your name to an important book. At different periods of time, a yeah. publisher might have a different attitude towards wanting to um, acquire books that will be um, sure sellers and wanting to acquire books that will create prestige for the imprint. Yeah. It depends on how fat the bank account is. Yes. And that, again, is something that can jump out at students when they perhaps encounter a, a book that receives a, a really negative report and yet was still published. Yeah. Or conversely, um, a, a book that, that um, receives a very positive report and, and wasn't published. But this is so interesting, isn't it? It's like, if you look at the bank account, that, that, that'll tell you a lot, is how much they got in the bank. And then as you, as you say, it's like, okay, well, we can afford to do this great book. Whereas uh, mm -hmm. two years ago, it may not have been published by that company. That's right, yes. And in fact, of course, an important part of some publishers' archives are those financial records that are unrelated to the book publishing business. And these are parts of archives that are not routinely consulted by researchers, and I, I don't use them on this course, although perhaps I should. Again, Alan and Unwin, an excellent example of this, and here I must credit a, a, a graduate student of mine who's working on the financial history of the Alan and Unwin firm. And one of the things she detected was that the financial survival of the firm, up until about the 1950s, when it had its first bestseller, the Contiki Expedition, right. came about not through the sales of books, but it came about through its property dealings. And Stanley right. Unwin's um, nous in acquiring various properties in, in his own name and investing that into the, into the company. So the company was pretty much kept afloat by non-book publishing related income, which was then, you know, supported a book publishing operation. So I think it is important to remember that um, publishers are, are, are not just, from a financial perspective and a commercial perspective, not, not necessarily only interested in books. You have to have a certain amount of money to risk, to be in the business, you know, it's the gentleman's business. It's a, perhaps a business of the wealthy at, at, at up to a certain date. Would you say that's accurate? I, I, think, I, it, I think it varies. I, I, right. Yeah, I would, I would be cautious in, in mm -hmm. putting an opinion on that right. myself. But yeah. I, I do know that in the 19th century, it was, the amount of capital required wasn't as great as it, it was to become right. in the 20th century. Okay. And there are complicated reasons for that, which is partly to do with the way in which businesses operated. They, they, they sort of operated actually largely as undercapitalized businesses. Uh, okay. um, and they were yeah. dependent upon each other, really, for sustaining a, um, a financial viability. They didn't have to pay the big advances. No. No. Often no. The, the author shouldered some of the costs. And, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Just before we uh, we close, uh, I'm thinking of uh, Alan Unwin. I'm thinking of The Hobbit. Any need to look at that at all? Not on the course, no, um, no. but again, actually, The Hobbit is a really good example, or mm. um, Tolkien generally is a good example of mm. another part of an, an, another kind of material that you commonly find in publishers' archives, mm. which is records of illustrations well, and yeah. dust jackets. Yeah. Alan Unwin has some interesting material on this. The Hogarth Press, which is also housed here at the University mm. of Reading. Does that, go, actual, sorry, the, does that go right back to Virginia Woolf? Yes. Table, yes. Kitchen yes. table does. Yeah. And so you and and they have um, a lot of the surviving illustrations, the original designs for the illustrations. Um, also, that that's true of Chatter and Windus as well. So you can um, there's a there's a real sort of visual element of the mm -hmm. of the archives. So again, if I had two weeks for this course rather than one week, then it, an exploration of the the history of book illustration through mm -hmm. the records that remain in publishers' archives would be a very very fruitful session. Well, this has been so fruitful. I've just really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Uh... 
Andrew uh, Nash. Now, how can people uh, sign up for the course? <laughs> <laughs> well, the London Red Book School next year will run um, in the final two weeks of June. Okay. And we will be finalising the list of courses around about September, October, and mm. we open for business in November. November of 23. November now. of 23 yeah, okay. for um, the courses that will run in June 2024. Mm -hmm. And the Using Publishers Archives course will run alongside, um, I think, probably around 11 other courses addressing different aspects of um, the book. It will include courses on um, book binding, on illumination med in medieval manuscripts, um, a course on the modern rare book trade, a course on a history of book collecting, and many others. Wonderful. And uh, do you have an address off the top of your head, an email or a, 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 a website, or they just Google? Um, if you Google London Rare Book School, you'll find us. You'll good. find your way to the Institute of English Studies website where you'll be able to get all the information. Fantastic. Thanks again for your time. Thank you.